1: All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. That, yes. <laughs> thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. I
0: am here today with Emily Dwas, and Emily is an author and freelance journalist. She's written an amazing book that came out in October called Diagnosis Female, How Medical Bias Endangers Women's Health, and it's inspired in part by your own experience. So, Emily, thank you for being
1: here. Well, thanks for having me. And. You know? oh. Yeah. Appreciate your um, kind words about the book. Oh
0: gosh, yeah. yeah, I've already been talking about it on social media. Some of you guys uh, who are listening in may have actually seen me post about this book because it's really fantastic. Um, and we were actually just talking about this, uh, Emily and I, about the book that it's very digestible. Like it's dense, but it's not fifteen hundred pages. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> it's you. just the right length to really <laughs> get a sense of what is actually going on in the medical industry and how it's affecting women in particular. With Invisible Illness. And the focus of the book is on cardiac events, neurological issues, and gynecology.
1: And autoimmune and issues, autoimmune, too. Yeah. yeah,
0: but it sort of goes into other things, and you touch on especially the the uh, the discrepancy in, in health differences between women of color and white women and things like that. So it's really exciting to have a book like this that really covers the things that I think a lot of us have been feeling and thinking, but no one's been doing the, all the research and putting it in one place, and you've just done it.
1: So. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
0: thank you. So why don't we start um, with your journey? Can sure. you tell us a little bit about what happened to you okay. and the time span over which it happened and
1: how things went down? Sure. Um, so there were, I'd say, four years when I started having strange neurological symptoms like numbness in my arms and legs, and I started with my primary care doctor, who was very nice, and he diagnosed me with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is where your autoimmune system attacks your nervous system. And that kind of made sense. Yeah. He referred me to a neurologist right here in the Valley in West Hills, who he agreed with that diagnosis sort of. He said I had a Guillain-Barre-like virus mm. and that I should get better in a few weeks. And
0: they said virus, not like Virus, right?
1: right, virus. And I, again I you know, he was the doctor, I believed yeah. what he said and I should say I grew up where I would never question an authority figure, whether it was, you know, a parent or a teacher, or if I did question, I would get into trouble. Right.
0: <laughs> I don't think you're wrong in that. I mean, right. even I grew up being like doctor is God, right? So Yeah it's it's a, it's a synonym,
1: no? <laughs> right. So you know, and, and I, I certainly would not question a doctor. No. And but I didn't get better and so I went to another neurologist at UCLA who also said what I had was Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I remember tentatively, you know, fearfully saying to him, should I maybe have some kind of test? Is there something? Because there are tests you can do to definitively diagnose Guillain-Barre syndrome.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: None of those were ever done on me. It was they kind of... It
0: was conjectured.
1: Right, you know. And as one of the doctors in the book later said to me, you know, a diagnosis is just a guess. Mm. And if you don't like the guess that somebody's making about you, you might want to get another opinion. Mm. So, Well, now I had three opinions, and they were all, you know, renowned doctors, nice people. And they all said that I had Guillain-Barre syndrome.
0: Yeah, it seems like open and shut.
1: Yeah, and it didn't occur to me to, to you, know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I didn't know that I should say, well... Give me an MRI exam just to make sure, and I don't—I don't know why somebody didn't just, you know, why it took four years to stick me in an MRI machine. Wow. But it, four years, four years, and I so I think um, not feeling well became my new normal. I just kind of muddled through, and you know, life was busy. I had kids, yeah. and I would well, work.
0: Also- Do you you think you also went through that thing of being female and being told, well, you're going to live in chronic pain or you're going to live in chronic discomfort because we already knew we had uteruses?
1: Right. (laughs) No, and and I think I was very aware of not wanting to be a difficult patient or not wanting them to think I was crazy, so I I just kind of carried on until... I had what I call a flip-flop malfunction. I was helping my daughter get ready for the senior prom, and we were you know, running around with the hair and makeup <laughs> and all that stuff. And I had my flip-flops by the front door, and I thought i put them on and ran to the car. And then I looked down, and my flip-flop was not on my right foot. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, what the flip-flop must have broken, and I went back and got it. The flip-flop was perfectly fine, mm-hmm. but my right foot was not able to navigate into the flip-flop which was a new symptom that hadn't you know that hadn't happened before and
0: it's like it became directionally challenged it sounds like
1: (laughs) right exactly and so my husband said you know the neurologist at ucla had always said if you if something new happens or you get worse come back Hmm. and i that's good advice it was good advice so we went back to him and this time he did do a test, which mm. was he had me sit on the exam table, close my eyes, and he manipulated the toes of my right foot and I was supposed to tell him are they up or down. Mm. I had no clue. With my eyes closed I couldn't tell. Wow.
0: And so you hadn't lost sensation though, it wasn't like a total sensation.
1: No, it wasn't yeah. It was but there was some disconnect but, yeah. you know, between my brain to my toes. And totally. so that finally got me a ride in an MRI machine. Uh which happened like immediately they right. they sent me and about halfway through the MRI exam the technician came into the room and said, So, um, do you get a lot of headaches? Mm. And I said, No, why? What do you see? She as she backed up <laughs> toward the door, she said, Oh, we'll let the professionals answer that at which point yeah. I thought okay, uh, you know, That's all I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. You know, something's going on. Yeah. And so by the end of the day I learned that I had this thing in my head that was the size of like a baseball.
0: And it was it turned out to be a non-malignant
1: Right now, I mean, so the first the the neurologist when we were looking at the scan together, he said this is probably a meningioma, non malignant. They're not always non malignant, and okay. they can be even. The reason I don't use the word benign, and a lot of the advocates don't, is because it can be dangerous even if it's not cancer. Right, um, and and actually, I had a, when I thought about brain tumors, I always thought. Brain tumor meant cancer. I didn't even yeah. know there was such a thing as a non-malignant brain tumor.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people would know that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So was, that happened to you. So it took you four years to get the diagnosis. Right. So at that point, what happened? Did you Were you sent
1: immediately into surgery? So I was given the names of two neurosurgeons, one at UCLA and then another uh, one at Cedars-Sinai. Okay. So we started out with the guy at UCLA, which was without a doubt one of the weirdest medical appointments I've ever had in my life and probably somewhere along the way jump started this book I I, I mean I wasn't aware of it at the time I never wanted to write a book I was perfectly happy writing you know articles freelance articles but what happened in this strange appointment so and this guy was very highly regarded I'm not going to give his name because he's I don't know I hope he's not still working but yeah (laughs) that's always the hope isn't it yeah but we came in and he was sitting at his desk looking up at the ceiling didn't turn to greet me my husband was with me and he but he didn't you know say any of the usual niceties you would say he looked like he was completely bored and finally he said well what do you want me to tell you oh and i was too shocked to I I was already dazed by all the events that had happened. And so I didn't respond, but my husband said to him, well, we'd like you to look at Emily's scans and tell us what you think. My scans were there Mm. on the light box. So now he he looked at the scans, and he turns to me and he says, we're going to cut your head open like a pumpkin. And while he's doing it, he's miming the activity of cutting my head open, and we're going to take out, you know... The whole thing was so crazy and so was... Yeah. So shocking. So shocking. Like, why
0: would you, you know, and... It's and, enough that you've already gotten the news that, like, you have a baseball-sized tumor in right. your brain, but, like, then to have someone be like, and then we're going to do this craniotomy, right. and this is what, and that's like carving a pumpkin. Okay, maybe it is to you.
1: Right, and he <laughs> was and he was just being mean, and I, and yeah. it occurred to me, I, I wonder if he just talked to me that way because I was a woman. Mm. You know, would he have talked that way to a man?
0: But I wonder whether it would have been different if your husband hadn't been there.
1: Uh, well, interestingly, because my husband started peppering him with lots of questions.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is where it's interesting because it's in so many cases often so useful to bring an advocate with you to appointments. Right? It, it's and this very important. it was a male advocate, too.
1: Right. So and a male advocate who was good at a- asking questions. In like, fact, the doctor said to him, "You know, why are you ask? Like, you ask a lot of questions." And my husband interesting? And, well, and my husband said it's an occupational hazard, and he explained that he was a reporter for the L.A. Times. Mm. And when the doctor heard that, he immediately changed his demeanor. He started bragging about he'd had dinner with some soup from the L.A. Times recently. And
0: who cares. It's like, we're here to talk about my brain tumor, not right?
1: About your social life. It, no, exactly. <laughs> oh, you want a
0: good review? I don't know. Let's talk about it later.
1: <laughs> so, wow. yeah. So, I, I mean, there was no way I was going to have this guy be my surgeon. Yeah. So, from there, we went to Cedar sinai where um, I was very fortunate to have Dr. Keith Black hmm. be the neurosurgeon. And, and you,
0: you talk about Dr. Black, and you do interview him in the book a little bit as well.
1: I mean, I, I quoted from yes. things he had told me, um, including, you know, one of the things I had asked him about the the barre uh, hmm. diagnosis I'd gotten, and he said, when you have a tumor, even a benign one that's in your head for a long time, it messes up your whole autoimmune system, or it can. Well, and, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, and so that, you know, it wasn't that... They were completely wrong in saying I had it, but they didn't. They didn't look inc- deep enough. Yeah, deep enough. Why? You know, why are these symptoms not going away? So, yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. So, how long did it take at that point? You, you waited four years for the diagnosis. Was it then several months before you saw Doctor Black and had no, the operation?
1: Once I had the diagnosis, I saw him within two weeks, and okay. I liked him right away. He was, you know, very compassionate. He had a stellar reputation. He was very compassionate, very nice, and in talking with him, one of the first things he said was the only treatment now at this point is surgery, and that was the first time I realized, oh, so if this had been diagnosed four years ago, I probably could have had a one-day radiation treatment. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, wouldn't have needed to have a five-hour dangerous craniotomy. Yeah. Do you think you
0: would have opted for something like a one-day radiation? Oh
1: sure, yeah, no, yeah. no. If I would definitely would. have. I mean, wow. brain surgery is no fun. So. so in that
0: sense, it's. I mean, we're bordering on malpractice here that you had to wait that long for that diagnosis. No, absolutely. Of course, not everyone's perfect, right? But like, what would it have cost these early diagnosing doctors to have just ordered the MRI to confirm their suspicions? Right. It it made no sense, so. Mm. Do you wonder if it's also sometimes to do with the restrictions p- placed upon physicians
1: by the insurance industry. I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm that, sure that's part of it.
0: That that may not have been, that may have been why they didn't call for the MRI immediately.
1: That may have been, and also may have just been that they thought they knew what it was. And, yeah. and I think that was part of it, too, that, you know, they they, they were confident in their diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because I had a, um, a physician on the show recently who talked about the presence of ego hmm. in in medical settings that like patients go in with ego sometimes. And so do doctors. And, yeah. you know, if we could all just leave the ego at the door and sort of go, well, sometimes I don't have the answer to everything. Right. Sometimes I, you know, I come in because I have questions and I don't know everything, you know, it would be a lot easier for everyone involved.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. One of the doctors in the book, this lovely uh, young woman who herself had had a catastrophic Medical crisis. She talks a lot about the sort of patient doctor dynamic, and mm. sometimes it's sort of adversarial. When when she was going through her crisis, she heard one of the doctors yell out, "She's trying to die on us," mm. and and she knew it was because of the when emergency. I read that, yeah, yeah. I just
0: cringed. Yeah, <laughs> okay. right. Yeah, things not to say in front of your patients. <laughs> right,
1: right. But it also was kind of a, you know the patient doctor dynamic was. Uh, kind of off balance. Yeah. Well,
0: and almost as if there's a a glass plate between you as if you're not partners in your care, which is exactly what you should be.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Or, or at least what we should all be striving for, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that you brought your husband with you to some of these appointments. Was that something that you considered beforehand and said to yourself, gee, I'm going to bring Stu just in case or you know, bringing a, the idea of bringing an advocate, if you will, into these appointments. Was it something that occurred to you that you might need before all of this happened?
1: I don't know. that and Now I know that, yes, you, mm. you should always have an advocate with you if you're going through, especially a difficult diagnosis. Yeah. I think I was just so overwhelmed. I couldn't even, like, drive myself there. And once I got the diagnosis, I wasn't allowed to drive. So wow. part of it was, but I just wanted the moral support, too, yeah. you know. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Do you think that it also helped your relationship? That
1: in a way, it may have strengthened your relationship because you had this advocate in a. Person? Oh, definitely. No, I think. I mean, we've been married forty years, so. Oh, yeah. which <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, when I had the surgery, they put a cot, and this was at Cedar Sinai. They put a cot in the room, and he got to stay in the room. And, I mean, the funny thing was, he had an allergic reaction to the detergent they used. Oh yes, to, that's <laughs> I the so the nurses would come in and look at his rash. <laughs> like, hey, I'm the one who had the surgery here. <laughs> but I also wonder, like,
0: what detergents are they using if, like, your average person is having an allergic Well, treatment? he's got sensitive skin, I think, so. But, like, he's a sensitive skin detergent,
1: You're in the hospital. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it, was, it yeah. was funny.
0: Wow. So, that, I mean, that's really great because he was very much there for you. Oh,
1: absolutely. No, yeah. No. yeah.
0: So... What about a typical day? Now, I know when I ask this question, there's no such thing as a typical day for so many of us, but when you were managing your symptoms versus now, because okay. you're post-op many years now, right. what was it like? What were the awarenesses that you had to sort of stack up that maybe weren't adding up in your in your sort of synapses right? Um, with regard to the brain tumor? What were the things that you had to
1: be extra aware of? That's a good question. I just didn't feel like myself, and I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't. It was vague neurological symptoms like weird numbness in my yeah. hands. And, and you some,
0: sort of didn't know when or where.
1: Right, some loss of strength. And yeah. um, and actually, because the tumor was there for so long, my right foot's permanently messed up. I, it's kind of, it's not totally numb, but sort of partially numb. Right. and. So, I had physical therapy, and like I drive, I think I wrote in the book about the learning to drive with my left foot with adaptive equipment. Because yes, I yes. don't quite have this sensation. It's not that I can't walk, I walk miles and miles every day, but yeah. um, I don't have a perfect sensory perception in that foot.
0: Right. Well, first of all, it's wonderful that there's adaptive equipment available. Absolutely. But second, I wonder if the unpredictability of your symptoms at any point also bred fear. You know, that that suddenly you were fearful in your own body because...
1: I absolutely. Know, <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely. I didn't want it to be something serious. So yeah. part of the reason I was so happy when they said, oh, it's nothing, you'll get better. I was like, oh, good. I don't want it to be anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm like, That's it works for me. <laughs> we're willing to accept that. Yes. Yeah. No, no, definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. So since you've had the surgery, do you still... Have, do you have total trust in your body again? Or do you think that you still sort of second guess yourself sometimes?
1: I have trust in my body. Do I have total trust in the medical system? Mm -hmm. No, because what happened after I had the surgery, which thank goodness, you know, went well, then you have to have MRIs regularly. So first it was every six months, and then every year, and then I graduated to every two years. Then we switched health plans, and I went to Kaiser. Mm -hmm. And I was given a Neurologist, and my first, my goal of my first appointment was to say to him, "Can I have the MRIs every three year now? I, I hate the MRIs because of the dye they give you, because yeah. it possibly can cause kidney problems." Or and my you gra- getting
0: them frequently
1: enough, right? My grandmother and an aunt both died of kidney disease, so okay. I'm kind of like. Protective, yeah, of my kidneys, and um, and
0: that's a that's a note about people being aware of their medical history and their family and how that can affect right the choices that you make in your own care.
1: And when I first started having MRIs, there was no blood test given before the MRI. Now they do a blood test specifically to test your kidney function. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, so I was getting regular MRIs, and and this was through the neurologist at UCLA, and he would always send me an email saying. Uh, no evidence of tumor recurrence, which mm. obviously I was thrilled about. Yeah. Then I switched to Kaiser, and you know, with the new neurologist said, "No, go for an MRI now. If it's good, then we can talk about you know spacing out the MRIs." And it turned out the tumor had come back. But not only had it come back, the the guys that there was a group at. Kaiser, they called the tumor board, and they looked at all of my MRIs I'd had at Cedars-Sinai, and it turned out the tumor had come back five years before. And meanwhile, I was getting emails saying no evidence of tumor recurrence. So So someone was reading reading the MRIs and missed it. Wow, and you know they—they they showed me. They said, "Look, you can see it's right here." Like, uh, yeah.
0: But that's that's also a thing about you know it's that the medical system is this big machine, right? And you know who's handing what off to whom, and there's obviously some kind of disconnect, or there's someone who just didn't properly read the radiology
1: reports. Yeah, and and the neurologist should have looked at it. Himself. himself, When yeah. I interviewed Dr. Lin, uh, Liao, who's head of neurosurgery at UCLA, and I said to you, is that common practice? Do, and she said she always looks mm-hmm. at the MRI herself because it's like having somebody describe a picture to you versus actually looking at the picture yourself.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up because certainly with people who've been on the show, there have been incidences in which doctors may have or may not have read the radiology reports or Hmm. looked at the scans themselves and have missed things Mm -hmm. when they haven't read them themselves. Um, Because sometimes the people who are interpreting this information, they're not the end all be all. And sometimes it's also good to have a second eye on it. You'd think that at this point with enough of those cases stacking up that somehow hospitals would respond by saying, well, we'll make sure that at least two eyes or three sets of eyes get on these. No, it's a great
1: idea. I yeah. mean,
0: it would be such a simple fix, wouldn't it? Right. Well, from my perspective, but like, right. who knows with the red tape in the hospital system, but you'd think just having a few extra sets of eyes could potentially solve this massive problem.
1: Right. And also making sure, and it's okay for patients to ask this, if it's a brain scan, is a neuroradiologist going to be looking at my scan as opposed to a general radiologist who spends all day looking at elbows and knees and, and other things. So, you know,
0: very true, which is, and that was also the thing that happened with you is that it was probably someone who was
1: looking at a knee. I don't know. I mean, the names there in the chart, I never reported it. I guess I'm reporting it now, but (laughs) if somebody wants, if somebody wants wants to go back and look up who did that, you know, that that might be useful.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's useful at least that they give you the names, right. You know, gives you someone to answer for that kind of thing. So As that was discovered, what was the next thing that happened? You had to
1: have a second surgery. So um, I fortunately did not have to have surgery because it was so tiny when they found it at Kaiser that I got to have um, a one-day radiation radiation treatment, uh, which fortunately went well. I mean, one of the funny things. I, of course, I was completely freaking out that yeah. this came back, and I, and I and then I was reading stuff about radiation treatments that go wrong, all the horrible things that can go wrong. Well, everything has at least one or two <laughs> negative side effects that you've got to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah. right. And and, uh, and
0: you're a researcher. This just is just
1: what you a, do. no, yeah. So needless to say, I didn't sleep the night before, and and not. when you go to the, they do it at Kaiser Sunset. They give you an anti seizure medication to take. Mm before, because anytime your brain gets messed with, you, you could potentially have a seizure. And
0: then you think, oh, God, am I going to have a seizure?
1: <laughs> so but when, I was, when I was walking into the treatment room, a, a nice young doctor said to me, uh, you know, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm tired. I don't know if it's because I was, didn't sleep last night or because of the anti-seizure medication. And he looked at me so puzzled and he said, oh, did you have butterflies? And I and use a nice man and a smart man. I thought somewhere in his medical school education, they did not tell him that this is traumatic for patients. Yeah. And I said, butterflies? No, I'm like freaking out here. Yeah. Like, you know. I mean, it's interesting
0: because I've been saying ever since I started doing this podcast that like, I wish there were an extra year of medical school. Like everyone can thank me for this later. <laughs> but I wish there were an extra full year of medical school where doctors learn bedside manner. Like, it would just make such a huge difference when you think about it, right? I've got tons of great ideas. I don't know how much they would cost the taxpayer or someone going to medical school. But, like, I mean, it's very interesting that, like, this is a thing that happens all the time. That you hear a doctor saying she's trying to die on us or, you know, someone asks a weird question, perhaps for their own clarification. But still, it's like you're telling someone that they might have a seizure but you're doing this to help a tumor, like okay. But it doesn't change the fact that psychologically, right, there's trauma involved in this whole process.
1: One of the doctors I interviewed in the book is a wonderful doctor at Stanford, and what he he teaches undergraduates and I think first year med students about the patient yeah. doctor dynamic and, and there's how to have em- yeah and how to have empathy, yeah. which is you wouldn't think you have to be taught how to have empathy, but that's you do you do (laughs) if
0: the medical system hasn't taught us that there are plenty of other instances i think uh in our world that would teach us that sometimes you don't just get that at home and so
1: now you are completely free and you're just having follow-ups to see if the tumor grows back is that where we're at now right And the radiation doesn't remove the tumor it Mm -hmm. just kind of takes away its mojo and so you and, and because the radiation can cause new tumors to grow, then you still have to be monitored for that. So that's not is stressful. That, no, not at all. So
0: you're going back every few months
1: now. No, now I'm I've actually graduated to every two years, hey, which is very nice. That's yeah. great. That's yeah. really good. Yeah,
0: close to what you were pushing for. Right. So that's a good start. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E M B R Labs.com. Enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30, at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So in terms of getting ill, I mean, you are a freelancer, so when you got sick, were there immediate concerns about how will I pay my bills if I can't work, if I'm having these surgeries and, and treatments, and how will I pay my medical bills? And How are you balancing these demands of work and life when you are hit with something chronic like this?
1: Well, in fact, you know this was before the Affordable Care Act, so I knew now I had this monster of a pre-existing condition. So I was always a freelancer, and my husband was a reporter and editor at the LA Times, and we got our health insurance through his job. Mm. And because the paper was kind of in shaky ground in those days, they were offering buyouts, and he took the last buyout where they were promising that you could keep your health insurance. Really? You still had to pay for it, but we didn't have to go apply for it because I would be rejected. And so yeah. it more, more than affecting my career, it really affected his because he left a job he loved because he wanted to make sure that I had health insurance. Wow. So that was pretty huge. It's
0: a huge choice yeah. to make. Yeah. And if he hadn't taken that, you would have then had to potentially face this situation with self-funded health insurance that you I mean you would have been paying absolutely through the roof with a pre existing condition like this. Exactly. Wow. I mean and that that people are forced to make decisions like that is it seems to me very inhuman, but that's the nature of right. the system we have that we'll get into. Right, right. <laughs> so in terms of justifying the fact that you have this illness that no one else could see. Did you go through experiences aside from obviously being misdiagnosed? Were there experiences that you had where you had to explain to people no this is what's going on and or "No, I have a brain tumor and and
1: had to make them believe you? I don't think well, like with friends or people I was working with, there was disbelief yeah. but i I definitely um was sort of careful on who I talked to about it. I didn't want it to be sort of how I was defined. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in addition to journalism, I've also done some work for the entertainment industry. And when I was diagnosed, I was working on a script with a small production company, and I did not want to tell them I didn't tell them what was going on because, I mean, first of all, you can't be female, old, and sick in Hollywood. Even if you're a writer, nobody's going to see you on and screen. Also
0: not old, but like by Hollywood standards, <laughs> right, well, well, yeah. the medical yeah. standards. It's like you know that's a BS thing too, isn't
1: it? You know, right. But so I, so I never did tell them. I don't. I I just. Sort well, of disappeared, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no, I know.
0: <laughs> right. Wow. So that was something that you were very conscious of.
1: Very true. conscious of, yeah, yeah. That you don't want to be known as the person who was sick, or so I. Yeah. I
0: and do you think if you were male,
1: yeah. that story might have been different? Mm, good question. I mean, I don't know that men can be sick either, but men definitely have an easier time. In Hollywood, you know, yeah. I mean, there's been so many studies showing that that's, yeah. that's a whole other. That's a whole that's,
0: that's, that's a whole lot. That's right. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> men, men have an easier time with that, but also in the medical system. Yes. Um. So we know that your experience has in part inspired the book Diagnosis Female. So why don't we dig into it? Okay. Tell us about how the book was born. Okay. And and for listeners
1: who haven't read the book yet, what it's about. Sure. I think the seed for the book was planted when I was recovering from brain surgery, still in the hospital. And this was in August. And the surgery went well. But the night after the surgery, I was hungry and they brought me some jello. And as soon as I finished eating it, I got really weird muscle spasms, violent muscle spasms from my toes to my nose, uncontrollable. And because this was August, the only doctors on the floor were the newly hired residents. Mm -hmm. So like four or five of these young men stood there by the bed watching me have this attack, whatever it was. Just watched it. Just watched it. And then the leader of the pack says very seriously, well, we don't know what's wrong with you, but we think the problem is all in your head. (gasps) And I, if I hadn't been shaking so violently, I would have laughed because I thought that's a really good neurosurgery joke. (laughs)
0: surgery check yeah. except
1: that he wasn't trying to be funny he actually mm. thought that I was hysterical even though I just had spent five hours having the inside of my head rearranged mm. he 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 thought that it was a psychological problem
0: yeah
1: and that got me thinking first of all again I thought okay he's only saying that to me because I'm a woman no way would he say that to a man yeah but and he's a smart guy you don't get to be a neurosurgical resident Not for and, yeah unless you're smart so what was it in his medical school education that he thought it was, one, okay to think that, and two, that it was okay to say it to me. Yeah. And I really think that's, that's sort of how the book, you know, maybe the seed for the book was planted there. Yeah.
0: between that and, so we open your head like a pumpkin. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you cover in this book numerous facets of the medical industry in relation to women, right. and you discuss specific cases, uh, women who you've interviewed, um, some of whom are women of color and some of whom are are white women, and, and, you know, discussing the disparities there in their treatment and how long it takes them to get treated. I don't expect you to sort of name all of the statistics off the top of your head, but in general, what kind of, I'm going to call it an epidemic, what kind of epidemic are we looking at here?
1: So we can talk about cardiology, for example. And the reason I decided to focus on cardiology, neurology, autoimmune diseases, and some stuff in gynecology is because I think it goes on systemically Mm -hmm. in all of medicine, but those are areas where women face particular challenges. So with cardiology, to this day, a woman can go into an emergency room having a heart attack and be told she's having a panic attack and be Mm -hmm. sent home. Part of the reason is that women's yep. heart attack symptoms do not always look like men's heart attack symptoms. You know, we think of the classic yep. Hollywood heart attack. The guy gets blue in the face, clutches his chest, and keels yeah, over. Arm, yeah. Right. For a woman, it may not be that way. Mm. A woman can just be extremely tired. That can be a symptom of a heart attack. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, and, and, and one of the I- doctors I interviewed said that... Being tired is a symptom that's often dismissed when women say that. She, she advised, never say, I'm tired to a doctor. Say, I'm functionally exhausted. You might get a little more traction with that, which yeah. I was interesting.
0: Yeah, just choosing language differently in terms of the way that doctors receive information or data, as it were. And, and it's really interesting because this connection to the idea of hysteria, it's not new.
1: No, not at all.
0: This is something that traces back
1: centuries. 4,000 years when the, it, hysteria was the term they used to describe symptoms in women when they didn't know what what else to call them.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that you discuss, particularly in the first sort of half or third of the book, a, in talking to various uh, researchers and doctors that you, you interview for the, the book, is the disparity in research as well, that so many medical studies, the subjects chosen are largely white men, and Very infrequently, are they female? The NIH has brought in some rules about that when it comes to government-funded research, but you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: And that was one of the things that when I started writing the book, I had no idea that was a real eye-opener, that for most of medical history, the research has been done on males, not just male people, but male cells, male tissue, male animals. Hmm. For example, Two-thirds of people with Alzheimer's disease in this country are women, yet almost all of the research has been done on male mice. Mm -hmm. So then you wonder, well, is that why they don't know why women are more prone to getting Alzheimer's disease?
0: It's really interesting because if we had that data, (laughs) you know, doctors might sooner be able to diagnose women or... Um, you know, might be more aware of these conditions that largely affect women as well. So it's not just cardiology. What else are we looking at here?
1: So, I mean, it, all of medical research has excluded women basically until 1993. That was when women started to be included. And, and that was because the NIH mandated it. Right. And, and in 2016, the NIH said that for federally funded research, sex as a biological variable has to be included in the research, Mm -hmm. meaning... You know, you, I, the cells you use, the tissues you use, the animals you use—you have to have equal numbers of male and female. Only in 2016, so only the, three years ago. Right, and and one of the researchers I interviewed said, "Well, it's great that you know that we have this, but it's not always followed." Mm-hmm. And she, in her research, she looked at how many studies just used males, and it still goes on.
0: Yeah. So, so we're actually spending time researching the research to prove that we need equality
1: in the research. Right. History.
0: And, and here we are lost in the mire.
1: Right. And, and part of the problem is that that research, the disparities in research, do filter their way into clinical care because yeah. there's this feeling that male symptoms are typical and females are atypical, when in fact, for the very same disease, men and women can just present differently. Yeah. But there's a lack of recognition to this day that women's symptoms are different so and and again the example of heart attacks that there's still a lack of recognition that a woman couldn't have a heart attack without having terrible chest pain or mm-hmm. arm pain
0: I, I mean you mentioned that this is systemic in in the medical industry but it's systemic culturally and socially isn't it that you know women are always the second class citizens women are the second thought they're not the first thought you know so the fact that here we are, and these are very serious situations. Not to undermine any other situation in which equity comes up, but like, right. you know that that when it comes to someone's health and emergency situations, which the cardiology right. discussion is really focused on, that women wait will wait days and go through several heart attacks where a man will be treated right away, and that's not just true of heart attacks; it's true of a number of other conditions. And I mean, when it comes to gynecology in particular, we're looking specifically at female organs, which right. there's just not enough research, right? Because research is always more on the, the male body, right? I mean, it's it's amazing to me, reading the book, it was very clear to me, I knew, I knew that there was this disparity. I think we know that, you know, if you, if you're reading the news, you're aware that there's something going on. But the depth of it is shocking. It's, I, I mean, it's beyond, beyond to me. And it didn't just take you having to go through it. It's like the stories just unfold one after the other.
1: No, definitely. And in, I mean, in gynecology, one of the problems are medical devices, which yeah. are often approved without extensive testing. Yeah. And probably one of the more shocking things I learned was about power morsel- power morselators, which yeah, yeah. I had not really been aware of until I started seeing it in the research and hearing what women went through. I was
0: underlining things just for myself for future reference because I thought if I ever end up with fibroids, yeah. you just do not want something power morselated. First, no.
1: Stop. I mean, And probably most medical facilities now do not right. allow them. But they still, you know, you can still be morselated with a scalpel and Mm. there's no way to know ahead of time if a fibroid is malignant or benign.
0: And there's one particular case that you talk about, a woman who you interviewed who actually had a malignant fibroid um, or fibroids, had tried not to have the power morselator used, really advocated for herself because she knew, yet was forced to have the power morselator surgery
1: had that, and then, of course, has had the recurrence right. of cancer. And, I mean, and her story really moved me because she specifically said, I right. do not want to have this surgery. I want to have an open abdominal procedure where you take out the tumors. She didn't know that they – she suspected she might have a malignancy, but mm. she didn't know that for sure. But because she was a um, in the medical profession herself, she, she worked as a physician's assistant, she yeah. uh, was worried – and she did not get a voice in her own treatment plan. She was told, no, you don't qualify for that kind of surgery. You have to have minimally invasive. And she that was it. She had no choice. She had to have surgery done in a way she didn't want to have with a tool that she feared.
0: Yeah. And she's
1: been suffering the consequences ever since.
0: And it's fascinating because a lot of these measures are put in place to save in costs in medical care. And yet, What happens so frequently and where we finally realize the errors is when enough people get sick enough, whether it's from, you know, a poorly designed medical device or an under-researched treatment or something like that, that enough people end up having negative side effects or consequences of these treatments that finally the health industry realizes, oh, gee, it's costing us more money than if we maybe did the more invasive thing or did the more expensive surgery to begin with. But it takes thousands of people having to experience what this poor woman is experiencing and she's been dealing with for years for people to wake up and like meanwhile there are people who are
1: living with these life-threatening illnesses there was a wonderful documentary uh, i think about 2018 mm-hmm. the bleeding edge the, yes. uh, Netflix, yeah that looked at medical devices and
0: you you also interviewed the director of that right
1: kind of yeah and yeah. yeah and and I mean, that was a, a horrifying look yeah. at what, what's what been done to men and women from some of these devices that were not properly tested.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the director, Amy Ziering, if I've got her name right, right. Um, she um, even said uh, toward the end of that, that portion of the book, she you you quoted her as saying, you know, even when you think you're getting a particular kind of care, you might not be and you really have to know all the answers and ask all the questions because you're not fully in control.
1: Right. And with medical devices and also medication, a lot of times not uh, the researchers and doctors may have a financial interest with yeah. outside companies, and you don't know, is that influencing your treatment plan?
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about all of this because so many of these illnesses in the first place are invisible, <laughs> you know. Um, they're conditions that are either overlooked or cannot be seen. And so a doctor or perhaps a loved one might not believe that a woman is dealing with this condition. Um, But the extra layer of invisibility here is being female, isn't it? And the culturally, you know, sort of how we're looking at, at women and, and the lack of acknowledgement that we're giving to women in these settings.
1: That's definitely true with autoimmune diseases yeah. and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, where because there's no specific test often that can you know, clearly show, there's no x-ray, for instance, that will yeah. show this, um, that women are often not believed, even sometimes by their own families. Yeah. And, and those women really go through a lot in trying to get compassionate care. Yeah.
0: It can be a real struggle. And I mean, this comes up on the show too. Like, you know, we talk to people who, many of whom have, they have their, their family supporting them, but many also don't necessarily have that. And if you don't have any support, be it in the medical system, at home, online, um, wherever you manage to find people who are going through what you're going through that adds an extra layer of difficulty in these situations absolutely yeah. No.
1: one of the doctors um, was telling me about a patient of hers who has lupus mm. and she had to have chemotherapy which can happen with lupus yeah. and she this woman got absolutely no support from her friends whereas if she had breast cancer, she would have, people understood that. They they understood breast cancer. They didn't understand lupus. Yeah, so it it well, was, was very interesting. She was
0: in a neighborhood. Right. When someone, when one of their girlfriends
1: in the neighborhood had breast cancer, everyone brought her meals and stuff. And then when she went through chemo, no one did anything. Right. And I think, and I don't think it's because they were not nice. I'm sure they just didn't understand. Yeah. That, yeah.
0: Well, and also because people don't necessarily know what a disease like lupus is. And this comes up a lot too, right? I'm always saying this comes up a lot. This comes mm-hmm. up a lot because they're coming up a lot in our discussions on the show, but they're discussions that we want to sort of shout from the mountaintops that there are, in many cases, as many people, be they male, female, what have you, who are living with certain conditions that we talk about on this show specifically, as they may be living with cancer. Like, there are as many people living with autoimmune, 15 million people living with autoimmune diseases. It's more than cancer and many other diseases combined. Right. But because... Perhaps they're under researched, they're under marketed, um, or I, I tend to think, and your book has sort of, sort of confirmed it for me in many ways, because seventy five percent of these people are also female, right? You know, we're not talking about it as much, and so even though yes, there's less visibility, it's not like you're living with a condition that people can see from the outside. People don't necessarily know what these conditions are. I mean, I certainly didn't know about. I knew vaguely the words lupus and fibromyalgia, but until a few years ago, when I really started having these conversations, I didn't know much about those conditions myself. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. It's yeah.
0: fascinating. And I, you know, I commend you for writing the book because
1: nice.
0: it's like well, I say, it's essential reading. Um. so based on all of the research that you did in, in what ways we know what, that there are several ways in which the medical system is falling short. What about ways in which maybe it's working? Are there positives to this
1: story at all? Definitely, there's a the awareness is growing a lot, and there's I'm not the only person writing this kind of book. There's some other, you know, really good important books out there, and um, there's there's mm-hmm. doctors who specialize in treating women and transgender women, and yeah. you know, different people have been kind of left out. Yeah. So there, there definitely are improvements. Yeah. Reason to be hopeful.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And in terms of the way in which the medical system is falling short or needing improvement, are there specific improvements that you can imagine just from the stories that you share in the book or the treatments that are shared about in there?
1: You know, I think in some ways the Me Too movement maybe will help women in healthcare as well, because it maybe will make us braver about advocating for ourselves. Yeah. And you know, not not being afraid to to speak up and ask for what we need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of speaking up, can you talk to us a bit about also the role of privilege or lack thereof in in your experience but also in some of the experiences that you share in the book because we know that in many cases women of color are disproportionately sort of Treated badly in these situations, or misdiagnosed underdiagnosed right, how would you see that in your
1: own experience? I mean I would say that in general, women in general have can have a tough time in the medical in getting compassionate health care, mm-hmm. but for women of color it's often much worse, and I mean one of the most tragic ways this plays out is has to do with maternal health mm-hmm. and um, infant mortality, yeah. which our country has a terrible track record with that. I think we're the worst of any country in the developed world. I
0: think we are, yeah. Yeah,
1: and um, women of color have a much harder time. Mm. You know, probably the most famous example recently was Serena Williams, who literally had to jump up and down to get them to give. She knew she had she had, had blood clots in the past, and she was pretty sure that's what was going on. Yeah. But, you know, that she, she had to literally... Demand that they give her the heparin drip and a CT scan to find out what was going on. And, and she, she very
0: specifically told
1: them. She knew, yes. Yeah, yeah, she, she knew. She yeah. said, I
0: need this and this is what's going right. on.
1: Right. Yeah. But
0: no one believed her. No,
1: exactly. And it took her. It, it, it took her a lot of effort to get the treatment she needed.
0: And this is Serena Effing-Williams we're talking
1: about. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so.
0: unbelievable. Luckily, she's okay. She's okay. <laughs> Anyone's yeah. wondering? Right. wondering. But,
1: but she also right? she went through uh, significant postpartum depression, and one of the things I learned is that African-American women do have more problems with postpartum, can have more problems with postpartum depression. And one of the psychiatrists I interviewed said part of it may be because Sort of the accumulated trauma they go yeah. through in their healthcare that that could be a contributing factor. It's kind yeah. of micro traumas, I think was the word she used to describe it. Yeah, which is and that interesting. those
0: stack up, of course. Right. And when you say they have African American women have more problems with postpartum depression, is it that they're more likely to have it or that? They have it disproportionately at higher rates.
1: Uh, uh, both, I, I think they're yeah, and they probably have a harder time getting treatment, t- treatment. and diagnosis. Yeah. And di- I mean, all, I think a lot of women with postpartum depression sometimes they themselves don't recognize the symptoms, and their yeah. family members don't. And doctors may say, ah, you know, go have a girls' night out or have a glass of wine, when that's yeah. not going to help. A
0: friend was telling me that about just the other day that she's been dealing with something like that. And it's fascinating. Cause I was like, if you feel bad end of you don't feel good, you know, but that's also me because I've been through a health crisis. Not everyone's been through what we've been through to be able to say, "Nope," I'm putting my foot down. Right. You? And speaking of putting your foot down. um, I'm wondering what your top three tips would be for someone who may have something off may think, gee, that's an odd symptom. Uh, Particularly for women in this case, what would you recommend that people do if they're entering this world of invisible illness?
1: So, the last chapter of the book, I tried to offer practical yeah.
0: advice. I was underlining that like crazy. Oh. <laughs> The good thing was, I've got to tell you, the good thing was I was underlining it and I went, I already do that.
1: So, there's oh, a couple of
0: things that I was like, I do that, but there were a couple of others that I thought, ooh, I didn't think of that before.
1: And I see I never did any of the all the advice I'm giving, I never did any of that. I didn't know what the heck I was doing because I'd never had a serious health problem before. Yeah. And, but I would say and, and different doctors offered good advice. Probably the top thing is when you go into the doctor, have like an elevator pitch or a mm-hmm. log line of your problem. Just very oh, yeah. yeah, and I, I think that's smart. That's number one. Number two, bring somebody with you. Mm-hmm have your questions written down on your phone or yep. on index cards yep. and give your support person a copy of those in case you get overwhelmed and you, you know can't get them out, then maybe mm-hmm. they can step in. Yep. The, and, don't be afraid to get a second opinion if you don't agree, if, if something doesn't feel right. You know, one of the doctors I interviewed said, look, she said, if I took my car to the same car mechanic five times and they, they couldn't figure out what was wrong, I would go to a different car mechanic. So yeah. I think we have to have as much respect for our bodies as we do for our cars.
0: Absolutely. I mean, at the very least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also a mark of a good physician and. This is something that came up with a few of the physicians that you interviewed too and that I've interviewed myself where they say, yeah, go get another opinion. Mine's not the most important. You know, a good physician will say, go for it. You
1: know? Right, they won't be threatened by no, that. No, no. not and, at all. And, you know, people, they sometimes frown on going to Dr. Google, but mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea. If yeah. That way you can go in and say, look, I, you know, I have these six symptoms. It kind of sounds like lupus. What do you yeah. think? Well, that happened
0: to know? one of the women in your book, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, that's where it's also about knowing if you're going to go to Dr. Google, picking
1: Reliable resources. Respected sites. Exactly. And
0: that's, you know, things like the Mayo
1: Clinic. Right. Or, you know. National Institute of Health. That's good. Yeah.
0: Even the CDC in some cases, but not all. (laughs) Right, right. You know, um, but also um, really not going down the rabbit hole too far, right? Because if you go all the way down the rabbit hole, then you'll start having your own worries and and things that will just add to your own trauma. But it's good to have a measured approach to Dr. Google for sure.
1: Right, right. And support groups are terrific too. The advocacy and support groups can give you lots of good information. Yeah. Especially once you get a diagnosis, then they can help you out.
0: Yes, for sure. Well, and there are also um, organizations that aren't specific necessarily to certain conditions, but, you know, provide support across the board for, you know, different umbrellas. Absolutely. Um, so it's definitely worth doing the research and finding those communities. Yeah. And you mentioned a number of them in your book, which is wonderful. So for you now, as someone who's been through everything that you've been through medically written a whole book about it, Uh (laughs) do you have a top three, tips or, or not even tips, it's top three things that give you unbridled joy that maybe compromise your lifestyle changes or might be indulgences or guilty pleasures, or this is like my fun wrap up question, (laughs) you know, like three things that give you total joy that you're unwilling to compromise on that really just make you feel good
1: that's so easy for me to answer because it's my three grandsons. Oh, that's I, I, perfect. Yeah, I mean they're 5, 3 and 1 years old Imagine so that I great. yes, I love every minute of being with them. So. Yeah. Oh,
0: that's perfect. Well, and that doesn't, you know, mess with your
1: health in any way, I'm sure. Well, and interestingly when I had the tumor come back and I had to go for the radiation, uh, their first grandson had just been born. It was 5 years ago and I remember stopping at their house on the way to, to go for the treatment. I think I was dropping off something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was he was so cute and so little, I remember, you know, thinking, I've got to get through this because yeah. I, I want to be here for him, it's, you know. That's really lovely. And That's,
0: it's really a, a message to people
1: to, like, you know, turn to your loved ones if you can. Absolutely.
0: Soak up that that support and love that they give
1: you yeah and if you're not getting it from your family mm-hmm. then friends or mm-hmm.
0: for these community resources for,
1: yes yeah. yeah and and support groups are really terrific so. yeah. yeah
0: well emily we know that the the title of the book diagnosis female um where can people find your book and where can they find you
1: oh well the book can be uh, found on Amazon and also in a lot of public libraries. I'm, I'm a big library person, yeah. so I'm just really happy that this publisher places books in a lot of libraries. Absolutely. So if you don't want to buy the book, go to the library.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> To the Amazon, thank link you for the book um, on the the website page for this episode as well. And is there anything else that you'd like to share with everyone
1: listening? No, just thank you for kind words about the book. And oh. I wish all your listeners happiness and good health. Yes. And and uh, you know, a health crisis is no fun, but sometimes it leads to unexpected gifts like meeting you. Yes,
0: absolutely. <laughs> and you know, the other side of that is also reading a book like this. If you haven't been through a health crisis, can be so useful because. There's are so many insights to be had that you may not know you need to know <laughs> whether you're male or female. Um, and this could affect you. It could affect your loved ones. This is why I call it essential readings. Like there's even info in here on how to spot a heart attack in a woman that might be different from the way you spot it in a man. Um, and I was like writing this down in the back of my, my diary, you know, like just in case I see mom with any of these symptoms, you know, like, so there's some very—that's just me being neurotic, but you know, <laughs> I can't help myself. But you know, there's some really useful insights and information, and um, despite the the facts and the the research in this, it's full of heart. Thank and you. Such beautiful stories told here, and so I encourage everyone who's listening to to get yourself a copy because it's absolutely essential reading. So, Emily, it's been a total
1: pleasure. Oh, thanks, Lauren. It was great. Yeah, thank
0: you for being on the show. <laughs>
1: thanks for having me.
0: That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.